0: The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our
1: YouTube channel, youtube.com/truetonefx.
0: Jeff Sin, welcome to the True Tone Lounge.
1: Well, thanks for having me here
0: today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's exciting to have you here. Uh, you have you know quite the reputation as a guitar builder and a player. And uh, so, what first brought you to Nashville?
1: Uh, like everybody else, I came here to play. Um, I'm from Buffalo, New York originally, and uh, played locally up there since I was probably 14 or 15 years old, and uh, wanted to live the dream, you know? Uh, wanted to play for a living full time and get to create music with uh, more and other people and see where it would take me. So I came here in the mid, uh, mid-90s.
0: And so, so, what got you into building?
1: Building actually goes way back. Um, I started playing very, very young, and uh, I come from a family of uh, machinists and uh, people who are handy with wood—not quite carpenters—but um, so at a very young age, it wasn't just I love the guitar, but I would say as early as 12, I was like, "What makes it tick?" And I think I built my first one at—I started building my first one at 13. Um, had torn apart a couple before that attempted some fret jobs. Uh, And uh, so it kind of went hand in hand, you know, what makes them tick, what makes them sound like they do. Uh, That went on, and when I was was lucky enough, in Buffalo, New York, Joe Zahn, who builds basses, he's been around for a long, long time, quite respected builder, he was in Buffalo, New York. And uh, through a guitar purchase I made in his store, my dad kind of pushed me on to him and said, uh, hey, he tears apart guitars and wants to build And So I was lucky enough in the mid-80s, early and mid-80s, to kind of serve a bit of an apprenticeship with him um, and learn the ins and outs.
0: Yeah. What were you doing for him?
1: Well, it started off with the basics. Um, uh, a lot of sanding, of course. You know, here's 10 bodies sand them. Um, so what, what does that look like sand, sanding bodies?
0: What are you what are you trying to get? What point are you trying to get to?
1: Uh, usually it's a rough cutout of wood and you're trying to smooth all those rough cutouts if there are any any unevenness Pretty much getting it perfectly flat and ready for paint um, And there was a whole lot of that um, to his shop I brought I had been um, doing finish work with my dad on cars for years in lacquer so I brought a little bit of that lacquer experience, even that young, to Joe's shop. Joe was uh, dealing with polyesters and a lot of high-tech, durable finishes at the time to make a really reliable instrument. And I brought a little bit of that lacquer instinct in. Um, but I'm cautious about saving serving apprenticeship. Joe was very kind, and but you know I was between the ages of 15 and probably 19 or 20 when I worked for him. And, you know, I was pretty sure, like most people, I was going to be a rock star. So I probably could have learned a lot more from that guy. Uh, I probably could have learned almost everything I needed to know. Had I known that we would do more building, that I would do more building later on in life, I probably would have paid a lot better attention.
0: (laughs) What were some important lessons you learned from Zahn?
1: Quality. You know, he was was obsessive about quality, which um, that sort of, Neurosis sort of runs genetically for me, but it was reinforced uh, customer relationships in relationship to the product, you know, making sure the person's happy, that they know what they're getting. Um, and then also, you know, he built graphite neck bases and some guitars. We started to prototype a guitar. So I think just the... Um, Concept of keeping your mind open as to what could make a good instrument and not just think in traditional sense all the time whether it was Materials Electronics or whatnot. I think he helped to kind of open up my mind to a lot of different things
0: So so getting back to moving to Nashville. So how did you? Uh, when you moved to Nashville, how did you make a living? You
1: know, was uh, it as a player as a builder? No, or when, when no, when I, had... started off, um, I started off I started off coming from working class stock, I couldn't just move down here on a dream, you know, with 500 bucks in my pocket. So I had to have a job. So I pretty much just called Gibson on the phone and said, hey, look, I've got this experience. And um, I probably sounded way more confident than I really am. But, uh, and they said, well, come on down. And I said, well, does that mean I have a job? Or, what? well, come on down. And I just kind of couldn't get a straight answer. Long story short, um, a couple trips down, in an interview and stuff, I came down here and worked for them for about a year and a half. Um, what were you doing? Uh, they, they hired me at first to manage the in-house repair. So pretty much if somebody you know messed something up a little bit on the production line, it would come to our department and we would determine if it could be repaired to go back into production or not. Um, and it was everything from electronics to finish repair to frets to everything. Um, that very quickly, I sort of built my own little job description though with uh, the marketing department at Gibson USA. Whereas if they had an artist who wanted a guitar, we would get a call, Joe Walsh wants a gold top. Well what I would do is I'd go pick one out of the production line that I thought, you know, epitomized whatever he might have described he was looking for or what we thought, what I thought was everything lined up good quality and I would take that guitar and I would take it back to my department and finish that guitar out and, you know, level and crown the frets by hand and, and just make sure everything was ready to go into action. Um, and that's that job description, uh, I did it for many artists and started to get requests to go on the road as a guitar tech. They would receive the guitar and be like, hey, can this guy come and work for me? And uh, so that led me into guitar teching, which I had been warned years ago back at Zond. I had opportunities. Everybody said, be careful what you do, you know? Um, if you want to play, play. If you want to tech, tech. And uh, but it seemed like a good way into the music business because I knew nobody, and I to this day I'm I'm horrible at networking, which it's all about. Um, so I figured that would be a way into it all. So Gibson led to me becoming a guitar tech on the road for various artists. So who were some of the artists you worked for? Um, I started off the first um, the first. Folks that I went on the road with was Trisha Wood working for Johnny Garcia and the gang. Um, and then later on went to uh, Winona Judd, um, worked with John Fogarty briefly, and did some stuff in my shop for him. Uh, Jewel, um, a lot of you know filling in where you could with the Mavericks, Lucinda Williams, just a bunch of different acts, yeah.
0: There's a, a lot of guitar players involved in those those artists who were, you know, so, I guess with Winona, you would have had like a Pat Bergeson and Tom Bukovac. And, and who, who else was in her, you know, guitar wise, that you were taking care of?
1: When I came in with Winona, it was John Conley and Tom Bukovac. Okay. Yeah. And, and Willie Weeks was playing bass, and yeah. Steve Potts was playing drums. And uh, I have a going joke that some of my friends have heard uh, hundreds of times that, you know, I came from Buffalo, uh, I thought reasonably prepared you know, to throw myself into this talented gene pool of Nashville, having no idea. And then I think the very, uh, Trisha's band was wonderful, wonderful musicians. But um, I think the first time I stood side stage working for Willie Weeks and listening to him and Steve Potts uh, and Buke and John play as a rhythm section, I was almost spellbound for the first half hour because I realized how much I didn't know about rhythm. You know, and the, these guys were just so profoundly talented and were doing it on such a different level that it was an awesome musical learning journey. You know, I was like, listen to that, you know. So, so yeah, standing side stage, um, listening to and watching some of those folks through the years was, was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience to see them make their music firsthand and, and also get to dig a little bit and see what made it tick. You know, not just notes, but how are they getting their feel and physicalities of it, and it was it was a great experience
0: so how did you transition from so i guess from there you transitioned into building
1: yeah um in about oh 2002 um, i had kind of gotten tired of the road um, like a lot of guys i wanted to play and that really wasn't working out like I said, I was a horrible networker. And when you spend so much time as a tech, you know your skills for playing aren't what they need to be to be on that level to jump into things. I was—I say that I was fortunate enough to play with Wynona for about a year, and I've played uh, bits and pieces with some other artists here and there. But um, I just—you know—I got tired of guitar tacking. You know, I got tired of being the guy on the side of the stage and on the road and crews. And you probably saw this years ago too. You know, you, you'd run into these folks who were unhappy doing it and in such a tight-knit group of people working together so closely, that's really a bad thing to be around. So I I recognized, I didn't want to be that guy, you know. I wanted to leave happy, I wanted to leave enjoying it. So I got out of uh, guitar teching and got off the road, figured I'd seen the world for free, uh, and uh, decided to lean back on what I knew from years ago. Uh, One being, of course, the technical aspects of guitars, but then getting into building. the building aspect started. Uh, I had gotten when I got off the road. I started just a repair shop. We'll we'll try this, and then I'll start a band for fun. And uh, I had the repair shop for about a year and a half or so, and started talking about building myself a guitar. Well, my good friend Rob McNally said, uh, "Oh man, yeah, you should totally build the guitar yourself instead of buying it. You know, you've got the knowledge. You can probably fine tune what you want, get what you're looking for." And I was thought, so, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe I'll do that. And his next breath, he said, cool, because I want one, too, and here's what I want. And it was like, oh, oh, okay. you know? But that's how it was kind of born, you know, those two guitars, one for myself, one for him. And, uh, and then other folks started to see those instruments and request uh, similar things or something to be built, and it sort of took on a life of its own. And suddenly we, uh, the balance tipped from being a repair shop to being you know, more of a builder full-time.
0: So these first instruments were, you know, kind of replica mm-hmm. instruments, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I see with the instruments you're, you're, uh, you have today, you've got your own, you know, kind of modified headstock shape to kind yeah. of, uh, you know, give yourself uh, some of your own identity. Well, why don't we uh, hear you play a little bit of this uh, this guitar, and just before before we hear it. Uh, Tell us some
1: unique things about this from a regular kind of Jaguar-style instrument. Yeah, this was built um, with the express purpose of using it in my band Crazy Aces, which is a surf and instrumental band. So, you know, something twangy was paramount. Um, But I really wanted to keep the tuning stability and the authoritative twang of a longer scale neck. Uh, The Jags have 24s, I believe. Um, So... uh, so this is built, instead of the 24, it has a 25 half inch scale neck. Um, I also, uh, none of this is hooked up here because I'm kind of a derelict when I really get going at it, and, and simple is good to me. So there's just on and off for each pickup.
0: And is that a two pneumatic bridge? It's a
1: two pneumatic bridge, uh, yeah, just to kind of get away from some of the rattle things. And a lot of the issues that these guitars can have are easily remedied on a workbench, but while building this it was like, why not just head them off at the pass? So we did the tunematic, pneumatic, and then I moved this uh, bridge pickup in relation to where it should be is a little closer to the neck. What I wanted is a little more output and a little warmer sound with more bass. Um, I play a lot of Tisco guitars with the band, and those have pretty generous output and a lot of bass. So to switch to one of these uh, from there, this made it, it facilitated a lot more. And so it gives it just a fuller sound by having a little more full forward and at the same time it still pretty much sounds like a, a jag, I think. So
0: very cool. Well let's let's hear you play it. Cool. <laughs> Fantastic. Tell me, uh, uh, what is the the model name of this guitar?
1: We ended up calling this, this particular one I call a Jazz Guar, uh, because it's sort of a mixture between a Jazzmaster with a long scale and a Jaguar. Obviously we can't use those names in respect for the the company that's been around forever that we love, that built them. Um, We also call this without, we don't really build these in production a lot, we've been asked to, but we build a version with this body and, you know, a different layout with pickups and a fixed bridge and everything. We call that the Jazz Bastard. So.
0: so now you were playing on it. You were playing some more, you know, surf music. So this, this, uh, this is kind of some of the style that you play with Crazy Aces. So tell me about how that came about.
1: Yeah, I, I was off the road for a bit. And um, I, in the back of my mind, I knew I wanted to do something and create some music again. I hadn't created music in a while. I'd done a couple little projects here and there with some friends. But... Um, and and my wife had said too, I think because she's my business partner as well, she kind of recognized you're going to need to go and play or make some music. You know, you can't just be in the workshop. You're going to go nuts. So I did a little bit of searching. You know, okay, suddenly instead of being involved in a in the music business, um, it was I had this wide open choice. I could play whatever music I wanted. So um, I'm not much of like a fusion type player or anything, I'm a pretty simple player when it comes down to it. Um, But I went back to like what inspired me with guitar sounds originally, and you know, um, earliest was probably Scotty Moore with Elvis, but I have these distinct memories as a young man of being taught to shoot pool, uh, listening to like Dwayne Eddy and the Ventures with my dad and my uncle, and that music was just so cool to me because it was so uh, melody centric and with the melody centric it wasn't always about showing off or taking off it was about the tones and the sounds so that just sort of a light bulb went off my head and i'm like man it would be really cool to not only play that stuff especially as a long long time hank marvin shadows fan and stuff but to also create try to create in that vein so that's what led to crazy aces it was just a a fun artistic outlet you know go out have some fun and try to reconnect again with playing music and playing guitar for fun and nothing else. And, uh, yeah. So where have you played some shows? Uh, there's a lot, there's a really great scene or circuit you know, in the surf-instro genre. There's some really wonderful uh, um, festivals and summits they have. We've done this really big one. It's actually the biggest instrumental summit in the world. Strangely enough, it's in North Carolina. Um, we've played that a couple times. Uh, in 2016, we're honored to have been asked to go out and play uh, there's a surf guitar festival in, in Los Angeles, and it culminates in a uh, show on the Huntington Beach Pier, which is kind of where it all started. Wow. You know, so it's kind of ground zero and stuff. Um, so we do a lot of regional traveling, uh, Alabama, uh, Atlanta. There's a lot of folks in Atlanta who love us, so we'll go there as much as we can. Um, and then we do play around Nashville. Um, it's a smaller scene in Nashville, though, for sure. And I'm convinced that the Nashville guys too are waiting for this, you know, this big flurry of, you know, here's what I can do, you know, and that kind of never happens, um, just because of my playing, and and it's so much about the song, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit also about the the rig that you're, uh, you know, you're playing through. Uh, so I see you've got a, a Princeton Reverb that looks like it's been uh, had some modifications done to it.
1: Yeah, that Princeton Reverb is. Um, Golly, it's uh, we get as much inquiry about that as we do about the guitars we build and about the band. Um, really, this is just from the from the demo videos. This that is from found? the demo videos. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether it's the band, you know, just videos we put up of the band or the instruments, you know, in the shop that we build, people stopping by. Um, It's just a 73. We needed an amp to test things on. We wanted a one amp to test everything on so we'd have a basis, you know, okay, we know how that amp sounds, and, you know, it's a great size and a great wattage. And um, so it was originally a 73 that was in a little bit of rough shape, and uh, we just threw it in a new cabinet, um, and then my friend Jeff Heim and Todd Sharp with Nashville Amp, um, I just kind of gave it to them and said, make it sound good. Mm -hmm. And they did a couple little tweaks here and there, nothing too heavy-duty. Um, and we threw a 12 inch speaker in it and it's the rest is kind of its own history it's its own living thing <laughs> what uh, what kind of 12 is in it right now there's a uh, Mojotone BV30h in there okay. and so that that's kind of their version of a G1230 exactly okay exactly it's their version it's supposed to be I think a little broken in and that amp has had about four or five speakers through the years previous but that one that one is stuck and for some reason it just works great in that amp so. Mm-hmm. I don't question when that happens. <laughs> right. Well, what about your uh, your pedal board here? Um, yeah, this is a, this is just a little pedal board that um, it's probably pretty indicative of what I would take to what I would call a regular gig, you know, a country gig or a pop gig. I don't use a lot of stuff, um, and I don't really go on the hunt for pedals. Um, there's a lot of wonderful pedals being made these days by folks like yourself and a lot of the smaller guys in their garage and and um, truly great stuff. But I, I don't do a lot of time searching for that. You know, I just kind of use what I like, have what I like, and a lot of times it's cheaper or older stuff. Um, so this this would not be like a Crazy Asus pedal board, but like I said, more of a pop pedal board. Just, you know, a delay and an old 80s Moss distortion and uh,
0: Tell us about the, the Moss that's, that's from the old uh, tin series of the Ibanez yeah. pedal. So uh, w- what, what's the lure of that, uh, that
1: pedal? Well, um, this, this would be another one. I'm gonna tip my hat to Rob McNally. Uh, he, about 10 years ago, he had an eBay purchase coming in when he was out of town, and, and he asked me to receive it for him, and, and he said it was gonna be a pedal. And he said, uh, when it comes, just check it out, and make sure it works. So I opened up the box when it arrived, and it was one of those. And I remember when they came out. Never used one back then. But uh, so I plugged it in and just immediately there was something that happened with me in the pedal that I liked. Um, It's pretty touch sensitive. It's really works great with volume, turning your volume down and um, it's pretty ampy sounding. So uh, those kind of stuck with me and I started to find out too that there was this, in Nashville there was this little group of people, you know, um, Bob Britt and Rob and a uh, bunch of folks who, who gravitated towards this, unbeknownst to me at the time, you know, until we come up in conversation. So it's been a mainstay. There's times too, like I'm sure most guitar players with overdrive pedals. There's a love-hate thing. You know, you, you wake up on a Tuesday and you love it. You wake up on a Wednesday and you want something else. That happens once in a while with it. Mm-hmm. But overall, it just keeps coming back. Everything I try, it just keeps coming back, and that's on there. And it's it's sort of become a thing with what I do and how I'm able to control it.
0: Yeah, and then you've got a you know, Boss Tuner and a TC Electronics uh, Nova Repeater, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you've got this, z- the zoom, is that giving you, it looks like you've got a tremolo setting on there. You can use it for kind of any, any uh, auxiliary effects that you need. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I've been using that for is, um, yeah, um, whether it's a filter type thing, a tremolo type thing, um, alternate delays, uh there are some overdrives in it there's a lot in that little pedal and it's kind of just a good catch-all um you can also play direct out with it it's got some amp sims in it which i've i've done on occasion so it's just sort of a handy uh swiss army knife you know to have on there and it it could almost do what any of the other pedals do if one of them broke down so that's another pretty handy thing um
0: getting back to your building so you
1: uh you
0: know, when, when you got into, you know, building replicas, there weren't that many, you know, guys out there, you know, building them. Now now there are quite a few. Yeah. So what differentiates what you build compared to what some of the other companies do? What do you think?
1: Well, you know, I, w- I would preface with there's a lot of people doing great work. So, um, and a lot of those guys, most of those guys are my friends. We're friends with them. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who would like us to be kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Not combative, but I think a lot of people would like us to be, uh, extremely competitive with each other, mm. but most of us know each other and love each other. And, um, I think we all have our own opinions on what each other does well or different. Um,
0: I, w- I would, then let me back up and say, what do you think you do well?
1: Um, one thing we definitely bring to it is, um, uh, there's, there's an, an age thing can come into it just as far as how long you've been around and how many you've held of the real thing. Um, you know, going back to working in a shop to when I was 14, 15, you know, I, I remember being 15, 16 years old and having a regular customer of ours walk in with a seafoam green strat that he found underneath, not underneath the bed, it was in a basement. He was replacing a furnace for somebody. And, and it was kind of commonplace. This stuff would come in all the time. Our friend Ed, this inner city guy, walked in with a 57 Strat that his wife threw out the window and cracked the headstock off of, you know. Um, so my experience with actually holding those things and dissecting goes back a ways. Um, that's one thing. I think also um, the fact that it's a two-person operation. It's me and my wife. When it comes down to the guitar being set up, the way it plays and everything, it's its me, it's only me. There's not a team, there's not a bunch of people. And a lot of times I, I do what I call sort of zen guitar work, which is not zen, but zen. I, I don't get out a lot of gauges and measures and things like that. I like to take a guitar to where I think it goes and sounds the best and plays the best. That can drive some people crazy. But that goes into each guitar that we build and the setup and everything. So it's not a team of people. Um, it's largely just me setting it up in the end. My wife, Chris, does, handcrafts all of the bone nuts for them. You know, she does a lot of the uh, sanding work and stuff like that. So we each have our own jobs and there's nobody else doing that. So I think that's another thing. And then last I would say is aesthetic. Um, I I have a thing, I I will say one disparaging thing and it's not gonna be by anyone in particular, but I don't understand a lot of the modern builders who are building the replicas. And they offer relics, but they're not good at it. It's just plain and simple. I think it's important in life to recognize what you're capable of. And, um, and especially if you're out there marketing something. I think the shame about this is some of these guitars are fabulous guitars. But then they have these horrible-looking, you know, simulated aged finish on. And it seems a shame. Why not just paint it shiny and have it be a great guitar? Um, so I, I think that our aesthetic... Um, For the longest time, to set us apart, I think there's a couple folks out there um, that are doing uh, as well, if not even better, surpassing you know as far as the aesthetic goes. Um, Interestingly enough, we've sort of lost interest in that. We don't really try to replicate exactly. We're not trying to fool anybody. the The person we're trying to fool, if you will, is the player themselves. We just want them to feel like it's a comfortable pair of jeans, it's a worn-in pair of sneakers. I'm not interested in somebody seeing something across a parking lot and going, whoa, that looks, you know. Yeah. That's fine, some people are, and that's cool, and it's a really neat, it's kind of like the folks you see in the Louvre painting the Mona Lisa, you know what I mean? Some of them are going to really nail it, you know, some aren't. But um, it's not a pursuit that I'm as interested in anymore as far as trying to actually fool people or make something look old, with the exception if it's repair work. If it's repair work on an old guitar, we'll try to get as close as we can. But uh, so I think we have a, I think that would set us apart too. We have a little bit of different philosophy, you know, yeah. towards it.
0: So, you're, you also have a love of kind of esoteric, uh, '60s and well '50s and '60s, uh, guita silver tones, and such.
1: Yeah, we should definitely um, take a look at maybe one of those, just because that's what led us to build our our original guitar.
0: Yeah, because then that's kind of you know pushed you in the direction of yeah. Uh, of, uh, of another instrument, so let's uh, let's uh, let's have you play a little bit of the uh, the Ghia tone, which okay. is kind of an inspiration. Great. Yeah, so. let's get that one. Sounded great. So tell me, what's the uh, what's some of the the lure, or the mystique about these instruments?
1: You know, something um, about these it's 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 almost uh, indescribable for me. Every guitar player connects with something. You know, via the a Les Paul or uh, some sort of Fender or a Gretsch, and and something happens with that player. And. Uh, the same thing happened for me when I first uh, encountered some of these old, what um, were originally mail-order or catalog guitars, or the early Japanese stuff. Um, uh, there's a certain sound, especially to like these guillotones and some of the tiscos, um, that just hits home to me. It's, in the case of the uh it was uh, Mitsuo Matsuki who started the company in the early 50s to build lap steels. And I think some of that lap steel sort of sound stayed with him, the open, clear, but hot thing. And, and he continued to build that into guitars. This is, a, um, this is a probably about a 1959 LG 50 guillotone. He sort of continued to build that sort of sound into his pickups up into the 60s. So they've got this big, broad, open sound. At times they're almost acoustic, um, but they've got all this output too. So they have all the sustain. And the first time you play some of these, it sort of messes with your brain a little bit as a player. Because if it's got tons of sustain, then it must be kind of dark or muscular sounding, you know what I mean? Um, but these aren't. They're just wide open, you know, and yet they sustain forever. So there was just this thrilling connection that happened. And um, for me, I started to notice that it was in relation to the pickups a lot of times and in the in the idiosyncrasies of the pickups.
0: Now. Am I correct? Does, has Ry Cooter used that type of instrument, or just or the pickups? Yeah, not?
1: he's used the instrument, but he, he's robbed these very famously out of his LG series guitars and, and put it in his famous Blue Strat, um, and other folks have, have done similar. Um, I know he owns one or two of these besides, and then he plays another, an LG, I think it's the LG 180, I believe, which has four pickups. Different kind of pickup, but a very similar sound. And I've noticed that in interviews, he says the same thing. He likes about them. They're almost like there's a transparency to them, you know, that they're almost acoustic in nature. So, yeah, very very unique sound and, and unique instruments too.
0: So, so this instrument and some others kind of were an inspiration for making kind of an, an original instrument. Yeah. Now, before we, you know, before we talk about that one, yeah, I, you know, I forgot to, you know, kind of ask you about. Who are some of the, you know, the players that you have built guitars for so far?
1: Um, Gosh, we've done stuff for um, John Fogarty. Uh, We've done work for Bruce Springsteen. Um, uh, Just a whole bunch of people. It's uh, a lot of the Nashville guys. A lot of our stuff is uh, in studios a lot every single day, you know, here making records and I don't know. I've never, I think going along with a little bit of a lack of ego, that, you know, name thing for me always feels funny, you know, but suffice it to say just a lot of folks, we've been fortunate to work for a lot of folks that were, you know, growing up that were uh, heroes musically or, or just people that we really, really enjoyed. So, yeah. It's been Very wonderful. cool.
0: So, uh, let's, uh, let's, you know, let's take a listen to the Model 1 now.
1: Okay, great. sounding and looking instrument thanks appreciate that yeah it's been a lot of fun Been a fun journey so
0: so you you were into the the guillotine and some other instruments and so how did that instrument turn into this
1: um, I wanted to be able to create something totally original you know step away from what we're doing uh, from an artistic standpoint uh, and then I also wanted to bring to modern players some of those sounds that the, the guillotine that we just looked at They've got their share of problems as far as setup sometimes and playability, uh, some of the Tiscos and stuff. Some of that can be corrected but some of it can end up costing somebody hundreds of dollars you know, on a repair bench. Um, so we wanted to bring something modern, new that could come right out of the box but evoke some of those sounds and tones and that same sort of experience of kind of the open, clear, but loud thing. So tell me about the pickups. The pickups, that was the hardest part. Um, We delayed this project for many years just because um, that description of a pickup, it's like name a pickup that sounds like that. For the longest time, there wasn't. In recent years, a lot of the pickup winders are moving into replicating the gold foils and things of that nature that have similar sounds. Um, But for the longest time, there was nothing. So we have a, a long time relationship with Jason Lawler And naturally turned to him and and said, these are the sounds, and this is the construction, I think. Obviously, he knows way more about it than I do. I know enough to be dangerous. So kind of described it, and he's like, I've got something in mind, you know. And so he sent a set of these. We wanted a wide coil for a wide sensing area, but a thin coil as well. And... uh, the, the difference with these and most of the others is these are humbuckers. They're usually single coils to capture that sound, but these are humbucker. And he, wow. he was just, trust me, you know what I mean? We'll see how it goes. So we sent back and forth maybe two or three versions. But even the first version, we, we breadboarded him to an old guitar and we listened to him and immediately we were like, that's really close to what we think we're going for, you know? So, uh, so he helped, you know, complete that vision in the guitar. Um, I think that eventually we're hoping to take it one step further and offer this possibly as a single coil. Uh, right now it's a double coil, so it's great for studio. It's great for live. It still feels and sort of sounds like a single coil, big single coil. But um, you know, it'd be neat to take it and offer an additional version that looks the same, but so people have a choice. You know, so we'll see if we get to get down to there eventually. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the bridge. It kind of has somewhere in between a Telecaster and a Dan Electro bridge.
1: Yeah, the bridge started off actually as a replacement part for Dan Electros. I'm a longtime fan and player of Dan Electros. And um, one day in the shop just got this idea that, you know, all the Dan Electro bridges, you know, in their natural state, they're wonderful guitars. I love them, so you can almost do no wrong. But um, I thought you know, the bridges sit up on them, off the body, and I thought, gosh, if you transferred that tone to the body, to that wonderful tone-creating Masonite, you know, what could that do? So I kind of crudely hand-fashioned a bridge out of aluminum, which is sort of neat, because Nate Daniels used a lot of aluminum in his guitars, so it was sort of fitting, I thought, but uh, created a bridge that could retrofit to one, mount to the top, and then use the uh, CJ tooling Saddles, or just a regular angled tele saddle, for sort of a traditional sound, uh, sustain, whatnot.
0: Those are fantastic saddles, by the way. That's
1: oh yeah, thanks. I'll have to. I'll tell Jim that he. Uh, we kind of played with the different alloys for a while before you know we said, okay, these are cool. We like these, or these will be. You know what will be the CJ Tooling saddle, and I think his willingness to do that is what makes them sort of stand out a little bit amongst some of the other builders. Um, or some of the other parts, you know, manufacturers that are making them. So it was neat to use those and incorporate those saddles. But when we were designing this guitar, Zach, everything had to amount to the sound and the tone. Right. So we said, let's try our bridge, hopefully it'll work, it would be really cool if it did. Um, and we tried about five other bridges, and we ended up liking the tone of this one in relation to what we were looking for for the guitar. So it ended up being a happy ending. and. Um, we uh, CJ tooling manufactures this bridge as a replacement for Dan Electros uh, but we're also going to have these mass manufactured now out of steel and they'll be plated and everything as well and he'll distribute those and and we will so so it's it's uh it's 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 uh goes well with the guitar but it's also like could be a great replacement part if somebody needs for any reason you know so it kind of ended up being the best of all worlds no.
0: I love the aesthetic of the instrument. How did you know? uh, And I love the copper color and the uh, the binding. Where did you come up with the body shape and the headstock shape
1: for it? The body shape, we're kind of proud of this uh, in a really old-fashioned way. Uh, I'm I'm not much of a computer guy. You know, I'm I'm swearing at one every day because something's not working right on it. And I think they're brilliant. You can do brilliant things on them. So with that being said, I'm not a guy who's going to get on there and design something in CAD or 3D or anything like that. So we just went with what we know and uh had a couple inspiration shapes from 60s Japanese guitars from uh, one from Zenon and a couple other companies. And so Chris and I sat down, and we kind of got a bunch of these things we liked and then just took out the French curve templates and started drawing. And over a period of a couple weeks, you know, this is cool but that's not. This is cool but that that's not, you know, and I'd like this, and she'd say, What about this? So, oh, yeah, it's a good idea. So we do that. And after a couple of weeks, it evolved into this thing that we just stood back and said, You know, okay, we really like that. You know, uh, one dimensional, of course, but we really like that, and it really evokes some of those instruments, you know, and it brings in a little bit of a harmony, you know, stratatone thing. So once we had the shape, yeah, we got pretty excited about it, and, it, you know, it moved along a lot quickly from there. And, headstock was like the headstock originally was something that we just did quick for a prototype and we show the prototype to some folks it had no pain on it or anything and they'd come in and be like oh I love the headstock and we were laughing because we thought you know well we're going to design a headstock but then as you know with all of the uh, uh guitar players are headstock centric you yes. know they love it or hate it you know we just we have our aesthetic hang-ups you know and um so we thought maybe it would be cool, it's almost a non-design thing, you know? It's almost, it just takes that out of the equation. Uh, I know that some people have expressed dissatisfaction with that, but a whole lot of other people just said, oh, I love it, and it does tie in well with the lines of the guitar, and it keeps sort of this sleek thing going. Sort of a, a friend of ours described it as like, it looks like something they would have made back in the 60s thinking it was space age, thinking that'll be the future, you know? <laughs> And that was kind of a cool compliment because I think that's a lot of what we were going for something a little bit kitschy looking and, you know, little Jetsons looking without being too weird, you know. Yes. So, um, And then there were a couple of functionality things designed into the, uh, that were incorporated in design. Being a guy who plays with slide a lot, messes around with slide, I really wanted access to the top fret. So I definitely wanted a player to be able to get up to the top with no problem whatsoever. You know, we wanted it to sit and, uh, and balance pretty well, especially more so on a strap. It can be a little bit odd like that, I guess. <laughs> I'm saying that. Uh, but with a strap on, they sit almost like wherever you leave it, it sits. Um, so that was, you know, little things like that we tried to incorporate into the design as well. So yeah, we're real happy with it uh...
0: And so the body's mahogany? The body on these is poplar. Okay, um, poplar.
1: Yeah, it went back to an old thing. Poplars has um, got a bad reputation in guitar building. And I think largely because a lot of the sapwood is very, very green, so it's, it can be ugly at times. As far as the, uh, the properties of Poplar, though, it's very similar to Alder as far as the density, the way it resonates, the way it finishes. Um, and I had a, a guitar years ago as a kid, I still have it now, that's Poplar, it's an old music master. And it was one of my uh, training grounds for routers and pickups and stuff, the poor thing. But that guitar continues to say, it sounds amazing, it sounds ridiculous. You know, people pick it up, they're like, what? This shouldn't be, you know? So through the years, I've built a couple guitars here and there out of Poplar and always loved the tone of it. It's kind of got a nice, bright, you know, open pop to it, but it's got body to the note. So uh, we decided that when we built this guitar, we would go with Poplar. If you go back historically to some of the old, like, Stratotones, Harmony Stratotones are made of Poplar, which to me is a wonderful sounding guitar as well. So. It's, it's kind of a win-win, you know, as far as the way we look at it. And it's exactly, it's not built for budget reasons. We're not using it. We're not we're using it for anything other than we like the way it sounds. It sounds really good with this. We've built a prototype out of mahogany, and it has mahogany back and sides, you know, and a painted top, and it looks beautiful, and, you know, we're, this is going to be rad. And it's amazing. It's a wonderful piece of Honduras mahogany, so it's not an inferior piece of mahogany. Right. And it's It's a much inferior instrument to the the ones that are made out of poplar. It's a little more strident. It's uh, a little too clear. It doesn't have the body to it or the bloom. So we just said, okay, that poplar it's gonna be.
0: Very nice. Well, it's a a great instrument. And uh, thank you so much for coming out today. And thanks, thanks for for having me. I really appreciate it, really honored
1: to be asked. And yeah, love your stuff. Thank you. Thanks. This has been an audio
0: presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.